This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. And welcome, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you may be on this, well, here in L.A., lovely Sunday morning. It's been really windy, so we had a lot of rain last week, and now it's really windy, so I'm telling you, you can see, I mean, there's like no smog. It's unbelievable. You can see out. It's so clear. It's really nice, but a little chilly. I mean, when I walk my dogs at night, I have to wear like a sweatshirt or something, and that's rare for me, because I usually don't, I'm usually fine, but no, it's, uh, anyway, thanks for joining me here on Pet Life Radio. A couple of ways to get a hold of me if you have questions. Number one, here on Pet Life Radio, you can give us a call, old-fashioned, toll-free, 877-385-8882. Once again, 877-385-8882. Or better yet, join us here live on Zoom. You can go to PetLifeRadio.com, click on Shows, Ask the Vets with Dr. Jeff, and then you can scroll down. There'll be a Zoom link left for you there. Hit the Zoom link, and you can join me here live on Zoom. Here on Instagram Live, all you need to do is be here. I'm waving back to you. You can uh, send any questions you want. If they're, I'm going to share them. I love your questions, by the way. And I can't have you come in live on the show, though I'd love to. But what it does is it sort of takes up half the screen, and then other people, I don't see their questions. So if you need to get a hold of me, you want to just please, anytime on Instagram, and I will get back to you. You can always get a hold of me also at drjeffdrjeff at petliferadio.com or drjeff at drjeff.com. So I will get my emails and we'll go from there. And I just want to let those of you who are here with me know that I'm in the office tomorrow and then Tuesday heading with the fam to Cabo. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So I will not be here next week live on Sunday. I may. I mean, we'll see what kind of how good the internet is there. Maybe I will be on on Instagram. Mark and I will let you know. Also, I have to find out the time difference because we don't leave uh, Cabo until Sunday, like at four o'clock. So looking forward to some R&R. I would like to think I deserve a little bit of R&R, but <laughs> apparently my clients and patients don't think so. They want me there 24-7. But if you really need to get a hold of me, my cell, good old cell phones, good old internet, I'll have access to my computer. I'm bringing it. I'll have access to my phone. So uh, you can always get a hold of me, send me a, a, you know, a text. Or you can also, what you should do is think about going on AirVet. If you haven't done AirVet, you should always download AirVet. It's great. It is 24-7 access a veterinarian, live feed, you're talking to a vet with your pet. And I have to tell you, if you look in the app store and you see AirVet, we have over 7,000 five star, uh, five star, 4.9 something stars, which is pretty darn good. So I will tell you, pet parents actually love it, loving having access. So it's really cool. Anyway, I'm barking back at Otis. And let's see, so no questions yet. So when you guys hear your questions, I will. Oh, not New York. It's, it's bad there, huh? Yeah. And uh, yeah, there's Shecky. Oh, not bad. Two of my uh, three siblings are, are on. Maybe, maybe my brother will, will hop on at some point. Anyway, so let's get started. While you're thinking of some good questions to ask and share with the uh, other visitors here on Instagram and on Pet Life Radio. So I want to, there's some things that I didn't do, two stories I didn't get to last week that I wanted to cover. One is talks about senior pets. Most people, when they go to adopt, I know, and I get it. They want a young, younger animal, but don't forget the senior pets. First of all, kittens and puppies usually are, you know, are go are adopted faster. But remember that a senior pet is typically more established, probably house trained, most likely more 
behaviorally more predictable. They're already set in their ways. Could be bad, but if it's good, that's great for you. Less training. So, and in fact, they usually are training already. For older people, also an older pet is not as rambunctious, not as wild, isn't as mouthy. So again, there are a number of benefits to adopting senior pets as well. My son basically was interesting. He had a Frenchie, Carlos, who is amazing. And he also had Mo. Mo was an adopted nine-year-old English bulldog. Now, English bulldogs don't live very long. And so I figured, you know what? Why? He's sitting in a cage. He wanted a playmate for Carlos. Why not? Let's get him a playmate. So they adopted Mo, figuring he gets a year, two years, maybe. Well, still four years later, <laughs> Mo was still kicking. Now we finally put him down. He was like 15. It was just unbelievable for this bulldog. And uh, it, was, it was so great. And then when Mo passed, now Carlos was all alone again. So what did Brandon do? He came and stole back Denzel, who we had. So we lost Denny and Carlos got a playmate and they're both still uh, kicking strong. So that's great. Now, MMM, I, we talk about masticatory myositis. What, tell me what that is because that one, I'm not familiar with MMM. And if it is masticatory myositis, then uh, we, can, we can talk about that. So, um, so K80 Poo, um, tell me what uh, the MMM is. Um, if it was just MNM, how you treat it, you eat them. That's the best thing ever, uh, especially peanut. But uh, go ahead and tell me um, what the the uh, what what MMM is. We call it masturbatory muscle myositis. But um, anyway, that doesn't sound like it might be it. So next story, and that is number five from last time. Oh, here's one. What do you think? I know a lot of us that have no dogs know the answer, and that is, do animals dream? And if so. What might they dream? So research says, yes, animals, dogs definitely do dream. Cats, for example, dream of, listen to this, hunting, jumping, grooming, and defending themselves. Sleeping rats also, believe it or not, they, you know, they, they, they dream of, they dream of mazes, getting through the mazes. So here's another one, sleeping zebrafish. They also show mental activity. I don't know what they're dreaming. I don't think the researchers do, but there is that mental activity spiking during what the equivalent of their REM sleep is. So even though they're sleeping, they have brain activity going on. And I think that's pretty cool. Hold on. So yes, masturbatory myositis. So good. They're not throwing me another loop, at least, at least what you were thinking. So let's talk about that because it's a really good question. Masturbatory myositis, um, we see this fortunately not often, but we do see it typically larger dogs, but it can be anything. What happens is it's an autoimmune disease of the muscle and the masticatory muscles, those are the muscles right here on top of the head. So what you would see is a slow degeneration of the muscles on the head. So instead of being filled like this, they start to go like this. You have this big indentation on both sides of the head, on each side of midline. And no one really knows exactly why it's happened. The problem is, as that muscle tissue all right, starts to die, then what you have left is a band that is non flexible. So the first thing that happens is sometimes in really advanced cases, they can't open their mouths. It's almost like stuck. So what we do is under anesthesia, we have to slowly, and I mean slowly, gently stretch the mouth muscle. And by pulling, yanking that mouth open and loosening up a little bit, stretching it becomes almost like a, a fibrous band instead of a muscle. So there's no give. So since we, is a couple of ways to diagnose, the old fashioned way, still sometimes we do it, is through muscle biopsy. There is now a test called a 2M antibody, 
all right? And the 2-ME antibody is a, uh, it's a um, antibody that we know that when that comes back as a high, that's the, it's attacking its own muscle. So therefore, some of the treatment is to use not only steroids as an anti-inflammatory dose, which is a lower dose, but also as an immunosuppressive dose to try to stop the body from attacking its own muscle. So I don't know if you want to let me know if they did the um, 2M antibody test or did they do a muscle biopsy? Just let me know and uh, so we could talk about it. I'd also like to know how old your dog is and what breed. And that's just more for, for interest because we do see it. Uh, I, interesting, with all the pets I've had, I've never had it. I don't know. I'm hoping that we never do. But if controlled, and by main, I'm not, not cured, you won't cure it. The muscle won't come back. But if you get it early enough and stop the process of destruction, then these dogs, except for they look a little funnier because their head is shaped a little differently, but they do just fine. So anyway, I'd like to know also, Katie Poo, is that, I guess that's Katie Poo, I would, I would imagine, Katie. So anyway, yeah, let me know. That'd be great. Okay, so next up, seizuring pets. What should you do? And so, you know, this is like the old thing where they don't, don't do, but even it's probably not smart to do with people anymore, but it used to be kind of like, you know, when a snake bite, what, you know, what was the old fashioned way? You made little X over things and you sit and you suck the stuff up. That is not the way to do it. That is passe. With seizures, they say, remember people that have epilepsy, make sure they don't swallow their tongue. So you stick your finger in the mouth of a seizuring person. That's a great way to lose your finger. And with dogs, especially, they're not going to swallow their tongue. So no need to worry. So first of all, if the seizures last longer than five minutes or they come in a succession, like two or three in 24 hours, you definitely need to have your pets checked. This doesn't mean it's necessarily bad, but you definitely want to have your pets checked. We do a neuro exam. We take some blood. You want to take some blood because there are a lot of toxins that would cause seizures. So you want to try to rule things out that way. Um, of course, um, a neuro exam. And something that's very, very important, when you have a young middle-aged dog that seizes out of the blue and never had it before. And when not seizing, they are totally 100% normal. One of the first things that comes to mind is epilepsy. So much so that if I examine a dog that has a seizure and everything is perfect on exam, I'll take a blood test just to rule out any kind of toxin. But after that, nothing, no treatment. I just say, you know what? Let's see what happens if they have another one. Now, also keep in mind about seizures and repeat seizures. And that is that Seizures sometimes are like earthquakes and they have aftershocks. So oftentimes when a dog seizes and then in a short period thereafter has another seizure, that may not be a new second seizure. It might just be kind of an aftershock of the first one. Whatever was happening in that brain activity, it was still, it's still going on and it, they, they'll seize again. So seizures a lot of times look worse than they are. And therefore, I don't treat a first seizure if everything else is normal. Now, if something else comes up abnormal or they're showing signs of neurologic you know, behavior, even when not seizing, ah, different story. Now we have to try to find out what might be the problem be. And unfortunately, for, for those of you who want to pursue all these things, you rarely see anything unless it's major and you see a mass in the brain and the whole medium side of the brain is pushed over. You may not see anything on x-ray. Usually the way you're going to make these diagnoses is MRI. So. Anyway, just so you know. But anyway, it's um, something that are many of them are treatable. Epilepsy, definitely treatable. And some epileptics that we see will seize maybe three or four times a year. And those I like to leave alone because even with medicine, for a dog who seizes more frequently, so you do medicate them, the goal is to get them down to two or three 
or maybe four seizures a year, once a quarter. And if you do that, that's considered successful treatment. So if a dog is only seizing that much without treatment, then leave it alone because who wants to throw all these drugs in there? Sometimes they walk around like zombies. So it's not an easy thing. There are so many variables, but it's very important to have your pets checked out. Now, many of you like to play video games. Many of your kids probably like to play video games. How about dogs? Now, if you recall, one of the newer things about dogs that have separation anxiety or behaviors, destructive behavior when you're gone, right? Boredom, maybe even dementia. We talk about how giving them at toys and games that actively keep them busy, where they are working towards a treat or whatever the case may be. So why not video games? There's a company, it's a UK startup. It's called Joy, J-O-I, Paw. And um, basically developing video games that might prove useful for mental stimulation and also testing for cognitive dysfunction. So it's something that's going to have a screen. And I would imagine some sort of you know device where like a joystick where they can actually maneuver, but they're obviously should be linked to some kind of reward or something that they, they like to look at. Remember, rewards don't always have to be food. I mean, yes, you have a food motivated or treat motivated dog, like most of mine. Yeah, food's the answer. But just some kind of other stimulation might be beneficial for them and they may like it. Hold on a second. We have a question came in from Keanu Pup. Are heart murmurs, heart failure preventable? I recently lost my dog after he lived with a heart problem for a while. I was wondering if I could have done anything differently in these younger days. So the answer to that, unfortunately, is no. Early detection is the answer. But could you stop and slow down a process? Yes. Are you going to be able to cure it? Probably no. However, however, I have to say, there is a veterinarian in Japan. He's the first veterinarian in the world that is doing valvular transplants in dogs. I've already had two clients that have flown to Japan. It's several months. You have to keep the dog there. Sometimes it takes two trips back and forth for follow-up. And this guy does it. He is now teaching some US veterinarians the technique. And I would imagine at some point in the not too distant future, we will have veterinary schools in the US doing this procedure and teaching this procedure to board-certified surgeons and or board-certified cardiologists. But I find it fascinating. Now, heart murmur and heart failure are two different things. A murmur, dogs can live their entire life with a murmur, as some people do. The problem is when the murmur either gets loud, and there's also a difference between a murmur that is non-functional murmur and a functional murmur. So when the murmur is creating problems where there is blood leakage into the chambers, from the ventricle going back up into the atrium. And it's therefore having the heart work harder. And then the heart wall gets thicker. And then we start getting back up even more so, which goes into the lungs if it's left heart failure, mitral valve, which it usually is. And then we get what's called CHF, congestive heart failure. So again, that too could be treated, but it could be controlled, not cured. The underlying problem. So we're dealing with the symptoms. We're dealing with trying to increase the afterload of the heart that's opening up the vessels more so the heart, the blood can move more freely, less pressure. Remember, the smaller the vessel, you increase the pressure. You make the vessel wider, there's less pressure. So that means when the ventricle pumps and there's less pressure for it to pump into, right, the aorta, then what will happen is you'll get less backflow even through the leaky valve. So then Lasix, there are many, many medicines out there, Pimobendin, Enalapril, benazapril, spironolactone, Lasix, furosemide, that are all used 
to help heart rate, rhythm, and the thiazem. So the bottom line is when you have a murmur, the best way to make a diagnosis as to what is the problem, if any, is no longer through EKG and x-ray. That is now passe. The best way to get a diagnosis to know not just hear a murmur, see a larger heart, but what is happening, what is happening to the heart itself and is measuring the flow, measuring the pressures, et cetera, is to echocardiography. So there are some GPs that do echo. I only know maybe one or two. In our area, we have so many board-certified veterinary cardiologists that we send them to the cardiologist. A lot of internal medicine specialists, board-certified internists, also were trained in, in cardiology and can do cardiology and do echoes as well. So that really depends on just their own you know, personal preferences as to what type of internal medicine they practice. It's kind of like in human medicine, you're, you know, a lot of these subspecialists are inter are internists. Okay, you have infectious disease, you have urology, you have oncology. A lot of them go through internal medicine, cardiology first, and then they can get boarded, and then they also do their residencies in cardiology, and that's how it works in, in veterinary medicine. Neurology, oncology, and cardiology are all under the umbrella of internal medicine. In fact, so now I think derm is also a new thing. American College of Vet Dermatology, now they're going to be boarded through ACVIM, internal medicine, with a subspecialty of cardiology. So a lot of changes, but that's what you want to do, is have a heart evaluated by a cardiologist through echocardiography, and then that's the best way to determine what medications are going to be the best and of the most help. So um, before we go on, um, I'm going to take a quick break, take that quick break. That was a note to Mark. So we'll be back after these short messages. Do not, I repeat, do not go away. For those fortunate to have experienced the deep bond and unconditional love of a companion animal, the death that follows can be one of the most difficult and misunderstood losses to go through. Many times, this devastating loss goes unrecognized and trivialized by family and friends leaving grieving pet parents struggling to find healthy ways to cope with the loss. In And I Love You Still, a thoughtful guide and remembrance journal for healing the loss of a pet, Dr. Julianne Corbin calls attention to the difficulties unique to the loss of a beloved pet and provides an interactive and compassionate guide to help you process your loss and work towards coming to a place of peace and healing. For those interested in journal therapy, and looking for a professionally written and compassionate resource to help understand and reconcile the grief associated with the loss of your pet, this book is for you. And I Love You Still, a thoughtful guide and remembrance journal by Julianne Corbin is now available for purchase on Amazon and other major book retailers. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com All right. So a couple of things here while we have still some time left, a few minutes. Okay, here's a good one. It's a handle lymphoma, which is probably one of the most common doggy tumors be detected early. And so, again, with almost any disease, we just talked about the heart, with almost any disease, early detection is, look, it doesn't mean it's going to be a cure because most of these diseases or many of them cannot be cured, but it will certainly help. So, so here's some signs of lymphoma, just to keep you a, a little knowledge. They say knowledge is king. 
So a little knowledge is dangerous, but knowledge is king. So lumps and bumps that change in size or color or texture, unexplained weight loss, if there's unexplained bleeding or discharges or persistent vomiting or diarrhea, bloating, swollen glands, red itchy skin, or flaky patches on the skin, these are all possible signs of lymphoma because there's dermatologic lymphoma also. So mycosis fungoides is actually a lymphoma of the skin. So anytime there's anything that is abnormal in any of those things, that is indication enough to start looking for things, looking for signs. And the problem with lymphoma, when you feel it in the nodes, easy diagnosis, it usually starts in the, in the submandibular nodes, goes to the prescaps, to the axillaries, to the, the inguinals, and finally to the popliteals in the back. And those you can aspirate, you send uh, tissues, a sample to the lab, and it comes back lymphoma. Two forms of lymphoma. There's B, which is bad. There's T, B cell, T cell. B cell is bad. T cell is terrible. So neither is good, but B is better than the T if you're going to have a choice. A little more responsive to treatment. So anyway, the problem is, and we see this in cats, is that sometimes it's an intestinal lymphoma, and the mesenteric lymph nodes are the only thing that actually explodes, gets swollen. And then you have to aspirate those or surgically, which for many people they don't like to do. I usually can aspirate them percutaneously because typically cats that have it have been losing weight. It's easy to identify. After a while, you get pretty good at learning how to you know, stick a needle right through the skin into the node, um, get your samples that way, and you get a diagnosis. Anyway, but early treatment is a key. And one that's one thing about lymphoma. There are many, many different treatment protocols, and many of them are very effective. Most of them are effective. Are any of them curable? Not that I know of yet. And I say yet because there's so much work. In fact, of all the disciplines, one of the fastest moving, fastest changing is oncology. And so I think it's, uh, it's great. Next up, this is really cool. Speaking of cancer, click chemistry. Don't feel badly if you don't know what it is. I didn't know what it is either. Click chemistry. So basically, it is a delivery system where molecules can snap to each other. And so if you take a molecule that has been preloaded with a radioactive, it's basically it's a, they call it radiofirma. And so radiofirma, which is radioactive substance in molecules, you connect them, they click, they snap on to molecules in a bone cancer, osteosarcoma, and starts delivering this radioactive material within, within the actual tumor and we start seeing shrinkage. So it uh, basically, it attaches directly to the bone tumor. So it's really, really pretty cool. So um, again, these are the things that are coming up. Immunotherapy is on the horizon. We're seeing so many more cases where we are able to teach the pet's own immune system to attack its own cancer. And when you think of something that, for example, a vaccine, what they do with melanoma, right? They can make a vaccine out of it and then it delivers to the body and kills the tumor cell. I think they're working something with mast cell as well. So what's really cool about this stuff, it is so new wave, but it's really effective. Now, we just talked about lymphoma in cats, and they're, one of the prime signs are, and if it's intestinal lymphoma, is going to be vomiting, of course, and weight loss. So frequent vomiting in cats indicates a problem. Duh, obviously. But it could be anything from, again, this is our challenge as veterinarians. It could be parasites. It could be allergies. It could be an obstruction. Cats like string, string foreign bodies. They'll eat a long piece of yarn. It bundles up the intestine. Nothing can move through. They'll be vomiting. It could be obviously cancer, lymphoma, IBD, 
inflammatory bowel disease, hyperthyroidism, or of course, liver or kidney disease. So that's a long list that we have to sift through when your cat starts vomiting. Now, if the cat is doing great in every other way, is eating, and we take x-rays or we palpate or do an ultrasound, we don't see an enlarged uh, mesenteric lymph node, which is good not to see it, but we do feel very thickened intestinal walls. Then there's IBD. Now, when dogs get IBD, the prime symptom is diarrhea. When cats get IBD, the prime symptom is vomiting. So sometimes, and I have many cases of cats that all they need is treatment for inflammatory bowel disease, which is usually just a steroid injection. It's a long acting steroid injection, good for me from a month to three or four months. And then they come in and they're doing totally fine. Now, you know that that's probably what you're treating because if it was something other like intestinal lymphoma, then what happens there, because they mimic each other at the beginning, then what happens there is they'll do well for maybe one or two shots, but then they start getting worse and worse and stop re responding and et cetera. So uh, sometimes the best way to get an accurate diagnosis for a vomiting cat is to get either endoscopy or an open biopsy. Because here's the thing, this is what sometimes upsets the oncologists and the interns, that if you have a intestinal lymphoma and you treat it first with steroids, and then you realize, because you thought when you started treating it, it was IBD, it responded beautifully, first time, second time, maybe even the third time, but now it's back with a vengeance and no longer responsive. If you try to take a biopsy now, it may not yield as accurate a result as if you took it earlier. So it's always a risk. You have to weigh many factors. If you say, you know, let's try this, see how we do. Um, we'll keep feeling, we'll keep palpating for a mesenteric node. And if we see that, we want to stop treating and get a biopsy. Now, sometimes if you ask an owner with an older cat, if this was cancer, would you want to start throwing chemo at your cat? And if the answer is no, then don't do the fancy expensive test. Because my feeling about testing is, if the result of a test is not going to change your approach to what you're going to treat, then don't, unless you have this need to know, unless you are an academic or whatever, then don't do the test. Sometimes you may even get, not get the right answer or an answer you were looking for, expecting. But at the very least, even if you knew and the answer came back lymphoma, but you weren't going to put your cat through chemo because you did it once before and it was terrible, right? And some of these T cells are pretty terrible. Then you might just treat empirically and let's see what happens. But no vet, myself included, is going to throw chemo at a cat that's not tested first, because that can be really dangerous as well. So unfortunately, you see, there's a lot to think about. This, this is easy work. Yes, I love it. And I get lots of hugs and kisses from my patients, but it's still tough work. Okay. And I think that's all we have time for today. Mark has given me that dirty look. So next week, I may or may not be here. I will kind of let you know during the week. I would count on not, but um, you could, it doesn't stop you from asking questions. If I can get on and spend a little time with you, I will. If I look a little suntan, that's because I will be, hopefully. And um, anyway, maybe maybe even more relaxed than I am. And I'm, I'm pretty chill. All right. Anyway, thanks for joining me here on Pet Life Radio and on Instagram Live. We'll see you here maybe next week. If not, for sure, the week after that, Sunday. So stay tuned. I will keep you posted. And again, if you have any questions during the week, any of you on Pet Life Radio or Instagram, please reach out to me, Dr. Jeff at PetLifeRadio.com. Send me a, a private message on Instagram. Most of you, I see my names, probably have my cell phone already. So send me a text or call me. That's okay. All right, have a good week, everybody. And uh, we'll uh, see you in one, but for sure, two weeks. Bye-bye. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand. 
only on PetLifeRadio.com.